Nicholas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 11, 1886-87 vs England, Turner Wickets Overdrive. Whilst the 1886 tour was occurring, the Melbourne Cricket Club, who had funded the Australians, offered to organise a return tour for English players in 1886-87. However, the experienced heads of Lillywhite, Shaw and Shrewsbury, spotting an opportunity, decided to plan their own tour, the third time the trio had organised a tour of the colonies. The Melbourne club complained that they should have priority, but when Lords refused to select a side and Lillywhite's advance agent John Tennant secured exclusive rights to the SCG for the season, the Melbournians had to concede. This division bred mistrust and continued the poor relations that had developed between the two cricketing nations. As on previous tours, Lillywhite was travelling as umpire, while Shaw would be the manager. Neither would be available to play in the first-class matches. Shrewsbury again led the side, whilst experienced tourists Bates, Barnes, Barlow, Scotton, Briggs, Flowers and Reid all joined the venture. They were joined by William Gunn and Mordecai Sherwin, who both gave up a winter of playing football for Notts County to accompany the tour, as well as a new wonder kid of English cricket, George Lohman. This did leave the touring side with only 11 playing members, which did mean the players would each receive a greater share of the profits, but would cause further issues down the track. Without Scott, who had remained behind in London at the end of the tour to complete his medical degree, the 1886 Australians made their way back from England, stopping in New Zealand to play a series of matches against local teams of 22 players. Because of this detour, the tourists were not available for the early season matches, including the first games against the tourists, who had arrived in Australia in late October. The disputes in Victorian cricket that had led to the selection issues during the 1884-85 summer had ramifications for intercolonial cricket, with Percy MacDonald and George Bonner moving to Sydney to play for New South Wales. The relationship with Victorian cricket not being repaired followed their unbanning from selection. Fred Spotheth, along with his great friend Billy Murdoch, moved to Victoria from New South Wales. Whilst Murdoch refused to play against his old colony, Spotheth had no such qualms. The loss of Spotheth in particular would have been a heavy blow for New South Wales, were it not for the rise of two outstanding new bowlers. Charles Turner, the right-arm medium-fast bowler who had debuted as a 20-year-old against Ivo Blyside in 1882, had only taken one wicket in the four years since across four first-class matches. However, something clicked when he moved from his hometown of Bathurst to Sydney to take his cricket more seriously. At the beginning of the 1886-87 season, Turner was combined with debutant John James Ferris, a left-arm medium-fast bowler, to devastating effect. They were going to form one of the first great bowling partnerships in Australian cricket, and Shawside would be the first to witness a two in full flight. After arriving in Adelaide and drawing against the South Australian 15, the tourists made their way to Melbourne, where they played Victoria, featuring future Australian captain Harry Trott in his third first-class match. This game also ended in a draw, but not before Lomond confirmed his class wasn't confined to home pitches, taking 14 wickets in the match. The tourists then headed north to Sydney to commence the first of two first-class games against New South Wales. It was here that Turner and Ferris were unleashed. The two took all 20 wickets between them, with Turner claiming 13 for 54, twice bowling England out for under 100, and leading to a win by six wickets. After a series of games against countrysides, the return match saw Turner take another 7 for 34 in the first innings, with Ferris claiming the other three. However, poor batting from New South Wales meant that the English were still able to claim a nine-wicket win. The tour, however, was not going well in a financial sense. Crowds were down, meaning gate takings were lower than expected. Shrewsbury was also more concerned with selling cricket bats and following up investments made in local cloth manufacturing than focusing on the cricket itself. The increasing frequency of tours meant the games were less of a spectacle now, whilst an economic downturn meant people had less money to spend on entertainments. The Melbourne Cricket Club, trying to assert some pull, attempted to put together Australian sides to play Shores 11. Three matches were played between the Melbourne Cricket Club's Australian 11 and Shores 11 in December and January, but were not eventually classed as test matches. The Australian sides were mostly made up of tourists from 1886, led by Tom Garrett, with Harry Trott taking the place of Scott. Players such as McDonnell and Bannerman were not considered, whilst Turner and Ferris were not selected. The English won two of the three, with the other being a draw. 
Between these matches, the regular intercolonial matches between Victoria and New South Wales continued to be played. The match play at the end of December was a particular note, with McDonnell, who had been selected as captain of New South Wales when he moved there, made 239 in just over four hours of batting in the second innings. This innings turned a 40-run deficit on the first innings into an eventual 184-run victory with Turner taking 6-42 in the final innings to claim another 10 The result would have been all the sweeter for McDonald, given the match was played at the MCG in front of the Victorian authorities who had spurned him. The first official test rolled around the end of January to be played at the Sydney Cricket Ground. As such, the New South Wales authorities were responsible for selecting the team. Because of this, the match foresaw the return of McDonald and Bannerman to the Australian side for the first time since before the 1886 tour, with McDonald being chosen as captain. 1886 tourists Blackham, Jones, Garrett and Spotheth were also chosen, whilst Midwinter, who had last played on the 1884 tour, was selected. George Giffen was unavailable due to illness, whilst Palmer, who had originally been selected, suffered the injured kneecap that would end his test career and was replaced by Victoria's McShane. There would be three debutants, Harry Moses, a local Sydney player, as well as the two stars of the season, Turner and Ferris. England had no selection issues, as they only had the 11 playing members of the squad to choose from. McDonnell won the toss when Shrewsbury called incorrectly. For the first time in Test history, a captain chose to bowl first. This was mainly due to the pitch, which had been wet following days of rain and would be difficult to bat on. McDonnell's experience captaining Turner and Ferris also gave him confidence that he had the bowlers to exploit the conditions, faith that would be rewarded handsomely. Shrewsbury and Bates opened the batting, playing out a maiden off Turner. The next over saw two come from a cut behind point off Ferris, whilst Bates clipped a full toss from Turner to the square leg boundary. Another boundary came off Turner before Ferris struck, with Bates hitting into midwinter close to the offside boundary, out for eight. The score had only just reached double figures. From here, carnage would ensue. New batsman Barnes attempted to hit the third ball of Turner's next over, but only succeeded in skewing it to point where Spotheth took a magnificent left-handed catch, out without a run being added. Shrewsbury clipped a ball hard from Ferris towards deep square leg, where it looked to be heading over McShane's head. However, the Victorian managed to parry the ball in the air before leaping to complete the catch. Turner then bowled the next two batsmen, Barlow and Gunn, without any more runs added. From none for 11, England had collapsed to 5 for 13 in under four overs. Scotton fell to Turner four runs later, whilst Reid, after having survived a stumping opportunity, hit a cut shot off Ferris towards Spotheth, who took a catch diving forward and ever considered superior to his previous excellent catch. Briggs became the eighth man dismissed, becoming Turner's fifth victim at 29. Loma managed to make double figures, hitting the top score of the innings of 17 before he was last man out, caught by Garrett running back to the boundary off Ferris. The English had only managed to score 45, the lowest score in Test history to this point. Turner and Ferris, who had bowled unchanged, had done so well that the great Spotheth hadn't even been required, except for his two superb catches. Turner finished with figures of 6 for 15, whilst Ferris had 4 for 27. The Australians now had the opportunity to take a stranglehold on the game with a strong batting performance. They opened with McDonnell and Blackham, with the latter starting strongly with the boundary in the first over off Barnes. The next over saw McDonnell take Loma for three runs before Blackham was out off the final ball of the over, caught behind. Moses joined his captain, who looked in imperious form, demonstrated by a magnificent drive over the fence for five off Barnes. However, in his next over, the bowler had his revenge, bowling McDonnell for 14. Jones came to the wicket and, after a slow start, managed to progress the score into the 30s. At this point, a change of bowling almost brought a wicket, with Briggs getting Jones to hit a drive in the air. However, Reid misjudged the catch coming forward when he should have been moving back, giving the Australian batsman a life. The two batsmen were able to take the score beyond the English first innings total, and then put on 46 runs when Jones, who had survived another chance a few overs before, fell to Bates, being caught at point off Shrewsbury for 31. Turner came to the wicket and made three, but was clean bowled by Barlow. This left the Australians at 4 for 67 as Bannerman came to the crease. He was not the only Bannerman out there, with his brother Charles, hero of the first ever test, umpiring the first of what would be 12 tests. 
Luckily for their brotherly bond, no tough decisions were to be made before the end of play, with Alec and Moses seeing Australia through to stumps at 4 for 76, already leading by 31 runs. The players took the field on a fine Saturday, with 10,000 spectators arriving hoping to see the home side press their advantage. Moses started the scoring, hitting Bates for a boundary, whilst Bannerman set himself for crease occupation. When the score reached 86, Moses attempted to hit Barlow to mid-on, but missed and was bowled for 31, what would be the equal top score of the innings. McShane came to the crease and helped to take the score to 95, where he was struck on the pad and given out. In the next over, the new batsman Win Winter came on strike to Barlow following a single from Bannerman and struck a ball towards Shrewsbury at point, who took a left-handed catch to rival Spothis in the first innings, causing Midwinter to depart for a duck. Garrett joined Bannerman and took the score past 100 before he was bowled for 12 by the returning Lowman. 8 for 116 soon became 119 all out as Spothis and Ferris fell cheaply. This left Bannerman at 15 not out, having stonewalled his way through 140 minutes of batting. The English wickets had been shared, with Lowman and Barlow claiming three apiece. The Australian lead of 74 was less than they would have hoped for, but on a still difficult pitch it would still be a challenge to clear for the English given their first innings performance. Bates and Shrewsbury opened the batting, facing the destroyers of the first inning in Turner and Ferris. Turner nearly commenced the wicket taking with a fast Yorker to Bates, but the Englishman managed to keep it out. The two batsmen then scored fairly regularly, bringing the score to 20 before the first bowling change was made, with Spothwick replacing Turner for his first ball of the match. This change nearly brought a wicket, with a high ball off Bates falling just short of Bannerman. Ferris would soon after claim the first breakthrough, having Bates caught behind playing forward and back before being bowled for 24. At up 1 for 31, Barnes joined with Shrewsbury. Barnes hit both bowlers for boundaries, helping take the English past their first innings total with only one wicket down. Midwinter was tried with no success before McDonald returned to his opening combination of Turner and Ferris, but they were unable to make a breakthrough. The two English batsmen managed to wipe off the rest of the deficit and had taken their partnership to the brink of 50 before Ferris managed to get one through Shrewsbury's staunch defences, bowling the English captain for 29 with the score at 80. From this point, the English would lose another five wickets for only 23 runs. Barlow came to the crease, but could only make four before skying a ball to Jones at point off Ferris. Reid couldn't even survive one ball, being bowled by the same bowler. Barnes was holding on and made it to 32. It was only when Turner was replaced by Garrett that he was lured into a false stroke. He needed catch to Moses at short mid on. Barnes wasn't happy with his dismissal, starting to walk off before returning to pat down the pitch in what many in the crowd saw as an impertinent complaint about the state of it. Turner immediately returned and cleaned Bold Gunn, who attempts to hit him out of the ground, whilst Ferris completed his 5-4 with the wicket of Lohman, LBW off the last ball of the day. The English were now 7 down for 103, a lead of only 29. Following the rest day, the Australians took the field in a buoyant mood, planning on wrapping up the innings quickly and completing an easy victory. They nearly claimed a wicket first ball, but Blackham missed stumping Scotton off Ferris for what would have been a golden duck. At the other end, Briggs played with freedom, hitting both Turner and Ferris for boundaries and quickly raising the score. Scotton would be out at 128 when Garrett returned to having caught by Spotheth, but Briggs continued in combination with Flowers, taking the English score past 150. Finally, Spotheth was tried and with his second ball managed to bowl Briggs for a well-made 33. Last man Sherwin should have been out in the next over, but the Australian captain shelled a catch and slip. This would prove costly, as Sherwin and Flowers quickly put on another 30 runs for the last wicket with well-placed shots and quick running. Finally, Turner returned to the bowling crease to the end of the innings, dismissing Flowers for 14 with a score on 184. Sherwin had ended up not out on an invaluable 21. Ferris hadn't added to his wicket tally from the previous day's play, but still ended up on 5 for 76, taking 9 wickets in his test debut, whilst Turner added another 2 to his 6 from the first innings. The English lead of 110 was seen as a gettable target, but the tourists were now much more in the game than they had been at the start of the day. Blackham and McDonnell opened the batting. The two failed to have much of an impact, with the Australian captain LBW to Barnes for a duck in the second over, whilst Blackham was bowled in Barnes next for 5. 
As in the first innings, Jones and Moses combined for a steady partnership, batting for 40 minutes, although they did survive a close run-out chance from Barlow off his own bowling. Jones had taken his score to 18 when he lofted the ball towards long off where Reid, running in, took a great catch to complete the third wicket for only 29 on the board. Turner departed soon after for seven, caught and bowled by Barnes for his fourth of the innings. Bannerman joined Moses and the run scoring slowed considerably. Barnes managed to bowl nine successive maidens, whilst Bannerman took over 50 minutes to get off the mark. This allowed the English to build the tension. The Australians managed to pass the halfway mark to the total, with Bannerman scoring a three, before the introduction of Lohman saw the Stonewaller fall for four, in almost an hour and a half's batting. The Australians were now in desperate straits at 5.58. McShane didn't trouble the scorers and was out to Briggs soon after. Midwinter started streakily, with an edge past the keeper for four, but looked to be building a partnership with Moses before the latter was finally out, having spent almost three hours for his 24, giving Barnes his fifth wicket for the innings. Midwinter followed three runs later, playing back to Barnes and was given LBW. The Australians were now 8 for 83, still requiring 28 runs. Garrett and Spotter took Australia to within 16 runs of victory, but Garrett was out skying the ball to mute on off Lohman. Lohman completed the victory by bowling Spotter two runs later, with the Englishman completing an extraordinary victory by 13 runs, considered by many to be as impressive as the Australians win at the Oval in 1882. Barnes was the hero, claiming 6 for 28 off 46 overs, the pressure he created giving the English the win. However, the criticism he received over his actions following his dismissal in the second innings had led to Barnes lashing out. Whilst Lily White defended his actions in the local papers, Barnes got into a fight with McDonnell. During the fight, he missed a punch aimed at the Australian captain's head and hit a brick wall. This caused him to break his hand, meaning he would miss the rest of the tour. Barlow was also in a fighting mood, challenging Spotteth, who attempted a roundhouse punch at the Englishman. Fortunately, no injury came from this confrontation. With only 10 fit playing members, the English would have to draft in another play in time for the second test, which would take place at the SGG towards the end of February. The dismissal of Spotter to complete the match would also be the Demons' last act as an Australian test cricketer. He would be dropped for the next test, a decision that was surprising to most in Australian cricket. He had been the first great bowler for Australia and had played a key role in how the Australians managed to outplay the English in the first years of test cricket. Ending his test career also cost Spotter the opportunity of becoming the first player to complete 100 test wickets. He would finish on 94, at an average of 18.41, with seven five-wicket hauls and a test best of 7 for 44. He would move to England to work on his business interests, occasionally playing for Derbyshire. He would live on until 1926, maintaining a keen interest in the game. Losses for Spotheth as a bowler would not be felt by the Australians yet, as the new stars of Turner and Ferris continued to burn bright. In a third match between New South Wales and England a week before the second test, Turner took an extraordinary 14 wickets in the match, trumping Lohman's 11, leading to a 122-run victory for the home side. This gave the locals confidence they could reverse the result from the first test. Selection issues played the home side, however. As well as Spotheth, Blackham, Bannerman and McShane were not selected, whilst Jones was injured on the eve of the match. They were replaced by five debutants, South Australians JJ Lyons and Walter Giffen, who was the brother of the injured George, and New South Welshman Reg Allen, John Cotton and Fred Burton, the latter of whom would play as keeper. Of all the new players, only JJ Lyons would go on to have success as a test cricketer, with Walter Giffen especially coming in for mockery as the worst player ever selected to play for Australia. England had scoured the country and found Reg Wood from Lancashire, who had only recently emigrated to Australia. He had played two games for Victoria earlier that season, but the English still felt he counted as one of theirs, selecting him to take the place of the injured Barnes in what would be his only test match. Rain prevented the start of play, with the game not commencing until 3pm. Shrewsbury won the toss and chose to bat, something many thought he would avoid doing, given the success that Turner and Ferris were having on wet pitches. Bates and Shrewsbury again opened the batting, facing the familiar Australian bowlers. Both openers were out cheaply. Bates survived one catching chance, but would not survive the second, while Shrewsbury played a ball onto his stumps. 
Both were victims of Turner, who went on to claim another two quick wickets, with Reid and Gunn both falling as the score had reached 38. Ferris got in on the action, bowling Lohman for two, whilst Turner completed his fifer by dismissing Scotton for a duck. Briggs scored a breezy 17 with three boundaries, having been missed on three, but was eventually bowled by Ferris. This left the English at a precarious 7 for 73. At this point, Flowers joined Barlow, who had came in at the fall of the third wicket and was batting steadily. Early on, Flowers drove a ball back hard to Ferris, who failed to hold on to the catch. As in the first test, drop catches would prove costly for the Australians. They didn't help their cause with a series of misfields and overthrows leading the English to bring up their 100. Turner and Ferris, who had bowled unchanged from the start of the innings, were rotated out with Midwinter, Lyons and Garrett all being tried with no success. Turner and Ferris returned to the bowling crease, where the batsman is set now, taking the English through to stumps without further loss hitting seven off a turner over to end the day. The English were on seven for 128, with Flowers on 37 and Barlow on 24. Despite heavy showers, the play recommenced on time. Flowers was dismissed without adding to his score by Ferris soon after the beginning of play. Barlow and Wood combined to take the score to 445, when Barlow's vigil ended after almost three hours of batting for 34. The innings was completed soon after 451. Ferris had done the damage, taking all the wickets to fall on the day to complete his own 5-4. Turner and Ferris were responsible for 98 of the 109 overs bowled, something which would be a common occurrence over the next three years. The two South Australian debutants, Giffen and Lyons, opened the batting for Australia. Opposed to them were Briggs and Lohman. Both openers would be bowled by Lohman by the time the score had reached 15. Moses and Allen combined for a 25-run stand, the largest of the innings, before Allen became Lohman's third victim. The Australian captain, next in, had a life-wing gun missed a catching opportunity. He tried to take advantage, hitting two boundaries in a nine-ball stay, but was out for 10 when Gunn made no mistake the second time, again off Lohman. Minwinter and Cotton both managed a single run before becoming victims of Lohman. The English bowler now had all six wickets to fall and was a great chance of taking all ten. Moses, who had watched the collapse from the other end and was batting stoically, continued in partnership with Turner. Briggs, who had bowled without success to this point, was replaced by Flowers. This led to Turner playing a rash shot, gifting his wicket by hitting a simple catch back to the bowler. Moses was next out, his vigil lasting over an hour for 28 runs, also falling victim to Flowers. With a score at 8 for 83, Lyman managed to finish the Australian innings with only one run added. The Surrey man had finished with an exceptional 8 for 35 of 27.1 overs, the best figures in the history of tests to this point. The Australians had only just avoided the follow-on, meaning the English would commence their second innings. Shrewsbury and Bates now faced the familiar threats of Turner and Ferris. Bates survived an early scare when wicketkeeper Burton failed to get it to an edge behind, with the ball running to the boundary. The two openers took the score to 21 before Turner managed to get one past the English captain's defences. Barlow was promoted up the order in light of his first innings performance and performed the anchor role with Bates playing in an attacking style, leaving out to hit the bowlers. However, this would bring about his downfall, stepping down and yorking himself, with Turner again a successful bowler. He made 30 out of the English score of 42 when he had departed. New batsman Reid survived two chances, a drop catch in the outfield before a missed stumping opportunity. However, it was a case of third time lucky when Burton completed the next stumping chance, this time off Ferris, to dismiss him for two. Gunn almost recorded a golden duck, but the ball fell short of slip. He managed to make 10 before becoming Ferris' second victim, out for 10. Lohman joined Barlow, who had only made three runs in over an hour of batting, and the two took the score to 73, before Lyman fell inside of stumps, bowled by Ferris. Scott managed to see through, even with Turner being switched ends to bowl the last over of the day to him, at the same score, a lead of 140 with five wickets still in hand. The game recommenced on the Monday, following the rest day on Sunday. Barlow, who had started on 10 not out, was almost out-stumped, but Burton fumbled the chance. The two English batsmen being in a very defensive mindset, maiden after maiden were bowled by Turner and Ferris, before Scotton was worn down and dismissed by an off-break from Turner, the pitched out outside leg and hit the top of the left-handers off-stump. Briggs came to the crease, but also found scoring difficult, being beaten by Ferris multiple times. 
Eventually, the two batsmen did manage to start turning the scoreboard over, progressing the total towards 100. At this point, Garrow is brought on to immediate effect, ripping out Briggs' leg stump with his first delivery. At 7 for 98, Flowers joined with Barlow, and they took the lead past 200, surviving some very close run-out chances before Turner collected his third wicket, dismissing Flowers for 18. Wood was then bowled by Midwinter for a duck. Last man Sherwin combined with Barlow to take the score past 150 before he became the final wicket, to also turn his fourth. Barlow, who had batted for over three hours, was left undefeated on 42, the highest score of the match so far. Again, Turner and Ferris had done the vast majority of the bowling, taking four wickets apiece, having bowled 124 of the 140 overs in the innings. The English had ended with a significant lead of 221. McDonald took the responsibility of commencing the chase in partnership with Moses. Lohman and Briggs opened the bowling. The Australians started well, McDonald doing the majority of the scoring. The English bowling was not as effective as it had been previously, although Lohman was struggling in part due to having been informed by mail of the death of his mother that morning. The two batsmen had little difficulty raising the score to 50. Shrewsbury switched the end that Lohman was bowling from, and he finally managed to draw a false shot from the Australian captain, having him caught by gun for 35. Allen came to the crease to join Moses. The two batted for an hour, adding 35 to the score, before Bates, who had taken the place of Lohman at the bowling crease, managed to tempt Moses from his crease to have him stump for 33. This dismissal brought about a collapse, with the Australians losing Lyons immediately after for a duck, whilst Briggs returned to claim Cotton and Giffen, the latter for a golden duck. At 5.95, Midwinter joined Allen and managed to see Australia through to stumps without further loss, reaching 101. The Australians were well behind, but with the experienced Midwinter still in there, there was hope that the total could be reached. William Evans Midwinter was born on the 19th of June 1851 in Gloucestershire, England. He migrated to Australia early on in his life, where he eventually began playing for Victoria, debuting in 1875. The following year, he took 661 against New South Wales, a performance that saw him selected to play in the first test match against the touring English in 1877. He performed well, taking five wickets in the first innings in the famous Australian victory. Following this, he returned to England where he played for Gloucestershire for the 1877 season and was still in England when selected for the 1878 tour, meeting the team when they arrived and playing in their early matches. It was here that he was famously kidnapped by W.G. Grace, who stole him away from the Australian side to play for Gloucester, missing the rest of the Australian matches on tour. He stayed in England until 1882, while he returned to Australia as a member of the 1881-82 English touring side, playing all four tests and becoming the first cricketer to represent two nations in test cricket. He returned to Australia following the 1882 English summer and was selected by the Australians to return on the 1884 tour. Following this, he scaled back his cricketing commitments, but he was still considered a highly skilled player with both bat and ball, leading to his selection for the test matches for this summer. Unfortunately, Midwinter couldn't provide any heroics when play began on the fourth day failing to add to his overnight score when he edged a ball to the keeper off Lohman. The result was never in doubt following this point. Allen was eighth out when he was caught by Turner, subbing on for an injured English player, off Bates to 30. Garrett added another 20 runs from number 10, who was last out with a score on 150, leading to a comfortable English victory by 71 runs. With Midwinter's wicket, Lohman completed 10 for the match. The Australians have been solely reliant on the performances of Turner and Ferris, whilst the English have been able to make use of a stronger cast of supporting bowlers. This test marked the end of the extraordinary career of Midwinter. He had been there since the very start of test cricket and had been the centre of one of the first big scandals. However, his life fell apart following the end of his cricketing career. His businesses failed whilst his wife and two of his children had predeceased him. These events led to him becoming hopelessly insane and incarceration at a Melbourne asylum. He would die in 1890 at only 39, the first of the inaugural Australian team to pass away. Following their 2-0 victory in the test matches, the English played one more first-class game against Victoria, winning comfortably. The final first-class match of the summer saw the combination of England and Australian players in the Smokers vs. Non-Smokers match. The Non-Smokers put on 803 in their own innings, the highest score by a first-class side to that point, with Shrewsby scoring a double century, whilst Australia's Bruce and England's Gunn both scored centuries. 
Despite this, the match was poorly attended, reflecting the mood of the sporting public towards cricket. Poor attendances caused the tour to only make a small profit, demonstrating that there were limits to how much high-level cricket was sustainable. The English tourists, who were dubbed the strongest side to visit the colonies, had otherwise been successful, despite the lack of financial gain to show for it. Their superior batting and greater bowling depth had seen off plucky but undermanned Australian sides. This was to be the last contest for some of the consistent opponents of the Australians over the past few years, including Scotton, Bates and Barlow, all who played their last tests on this tour, although Bates would be selected for the following tour. The Australians were still reeling over the disputes and clashes between players and administrators over the last few years, and not even the rise of Turner and Ferris could cover the cracks. The unsustainability of this situation would play out the following summer, where two competing English tourist sites would arrive, threatening the sustainability of cricket in Australia. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.